Hi, my name's Michael and welcome to Today Dreamer, a podcast and YouTube channel that examines the interplay between inner work and outer work. Through conscious conversations and practical walkthroughs, we'll be exploring ideas and practices to help you find a deeper sense of clarity, develop your focus and take meaningful action. I hope you love the show. Hello. I hope that you're well out there and I hope that whatever's happening in your life at the moment, you know, whatever obstacles you're facing and whatever experiences that you're having, I really hope that you're finding a way to navigate them with a sense of meaning and truth. Today's episode is going to be around that theme actually and the the idea of meaningful action in our lives is really one of the core pillars of this podcast, this thing that I'm putting together and and of my life. It's an area that I, I want to explore as deeply as possible and I'm so grateful that you've come along on that ride and that journey of exploration and discovery. So today's episode around meaning is really going to be uh, around this idea of the psyche as the soul and finding a way to drop into that space of listening to what our soul is calling out and then transitioning to a to a phase I guess of meaningful action. I'm going to be speaking to Dr. James Willis who is a Jungian analyst and we're going to touch on some themes uh, that Carl Jung was exploring during his, you know, beautiful body of work. And um, some of those themes include the idea of synchronicity, the idea of dreams, allowing us to, in a sense, really draw a link between the intrapsychic space and what we feel is our regular reality. We're also going to be talking about shadow work and how to integrate the different parts of your being, maybe the darker sides into the full spectrum of your of your existence to become a more full and whole and fulfilled being or, or human. We're also going to be talking about uh, the idea of, of self and archetypes and the collective unconscious we're touching on those elements but the main main core driver of this of this episode the intention behind it is really to get you to pause for a moment and take a breath and really really just consider you know what is meaningful to you in your life and um, to recognize opportunities for change recognize opportunities to head towards something maybe that that may be more meaningful than the path that you've currently been trotting on. So before we begin, I'd like to invite you to have a couple of deep breaths with me in through the nose um, and then using the diaphragm, expanding and allowing this smooth um, runway of air to kind of glide in through your nostrils and then holding kind of a moment somewhere on your forehead uh, and then and then allowing yourself to release just as slowly and smoothly and drop into a space with me and um, yeah so we can really kind of launch and get into it so let's do that now 
in through the nostrils and we'll go from there. So let's get into this chat with Dr. James Willis and hopefully these episodes are really a chance for you to, to take a pause to explore that space when, you, when you're able to do that and, and step away from whatever has happened throughout your day or, or night, wherever you are. If you're enjoying the journey, if you're starting on it with me, then then please, um, you know, feel free to to contribute on 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 the vibes that I'm putting out by sharing, leaving a comment, letting me know what you think, and just kind of engaging in one way or another. I would really appreciate that. And um, yeah, here's the conversation. How is uh, how is life in Australia? Oh, well, it's, I guess it's different for everyone. Um, for me at the moment, um, things are going quite well. Uh, as I mentioned, I think in my email to you yesterday, I was, I've been doing some kind of background research and, and looking through, um, a couple of your books and, and, and your interviews. And, and the, it's really been quite a profound experience. It's, it's really helped me, um, come to some understandings in my own life and some realizations. So, um, on that front, it's been really good, but, um, I think there's a lot of tension in the air here and I think, I feel mm -hmm. people are really, um, struggling at the moment and, sure. um, yeah, it's, it's coming to spring though. So the season's changing and I can feel a sense of change and, and, um, it's nice hearing the birds chirp and, and, and seeing some new flowers blossom and, and, um, just noticing the weather changing. So on that front, it's been it's been quite nice as well. Um, that makes a difference. That makes a difference. We're ending summer mm. and about to begin fall and the descent into the dark time, as you know. So uh, the fact that people could get out in their sequestering here and see the sun and green things has been very helpful to people. And um, but that time's going to disappear, and you folks are just coming out of it. So I'm glad for you. So yeah, yeah, it's definitely there's definitely a shift taking place, isn't there? Mm -hmm. Hmm. And and whereabouts are you located, and, and how are things on your end? Washington D.C. Mm. <laughs> That's oh. why I put this on the background here. Oh yeah, nice, nice. That's where I live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And and um, what's it like over there? What's what's the vibe like? Oh, you don't want to know. It's very agitated. Very. I mean, the, the I don't want to get into the politics in our discussion, but so. the inept leadership and the selfish leadership has brought us to a difficult place. And we've just entered the formal phase of our election campaign, which will consume the next 70 days. And it's going to be very nasty and it's going to be bitter and unfortunate. And the next three months are going to be profoundly um, difficult, I would think. So, mm -hmm. so we'll see. Yeah, yeah. 
I was, I don't know, I've been thinking about where everything's at at the moment. And it seems like we're in kind of like when you speak about different stages of life, it seems like we're in a bit of a passage at the moment. Oh, yeah. No, that's um, absolutely right. Yeah, and right. I think a lot of what you speak about and a lot of, you know, what Jung touched on with his work is kind of relevant more than ever at the moment because mm-hmm. I can see a lot of parallels between, you know, since since the, you know, this this financial crisis, the, the climate mm-hmm. crisis, the uh, geopolitical polarization and the mm-hmm. kind of convergence of crises on, on, all, on many different levels, people are kind of adrift at the moment. That's right. And it's, it's, it's kind of like something hitting you in the face and, and giving you an opportunity to um, kind of just reflect on, on what's important mm-hmm. and what's significant in your life. That's, that's sure. definitely seems to yeah. be, yeah, what's going on. And I was wondering if you could maybe... Um, we could begin maybe by speaking about meaning and, um, why, why you feel that it may be important, um, to find meaning in life and, and, and maybe a little bit around what happens if we don't. That's right. Okay, fine. How long do you want to talk, Michael? As long as you have, I usually, um, allow things to run the natural course, but if, if you've got time restrictions, I realize, you know, it's seven o'clock there, so you probably want to have some dinner soon <laughs> so it's it's totally up to you yeah well let's we could go up to an hour up to you know 50 minutes or something like that so let's yeah. let's just begin and sure. dive in sure and I'll, I'll follow your lead yeah yeah so let's let's start on this point of meaning and and um you know i guess the first question would be you know what what happens if we don't if we don't find a sense of meaning in our lives and why is that um, kind of a focus of, of uh, Jungian work? Well, you know, we're miserable if we don't find meaning in life and uh, throughout the history of humankind, as you well know, so much of uh, humanity's uh, life has been constricted by um, extreme impoverishment, the struggle for survival, totalitarian regimes and so forth. Uh, But there's something inside of each of us, we'll call it the human psyche, which is after all the Greek word for soul, there's something inside of each of us that um, suffers when we're disconnected from what is meaningful to us. And um, you can't impose meaning on someone else. It's sort of like saying to someone, well, my favorite food has to be your favorite food. We would think that's kind of a ridiculous assumption but uh, there's something inside of each of us that knows what is right for us. And when it gets violated, as so often happens, it pathologizes. And that word pathology mean, comes from the Greek word for suffering, pathos. It's, you know, pathology, psychopathology, when I spend a lot of time working with folks in states of psychopathology, means simply the suffering of the soul. And when you think about where so much therapy is today, you know, we are behaviors, that's true, and that's important. We are cognitive processes, that's true, and that's important. We are biological processes as well, that's true, and that's important. But there's something else beyond all that. If you add all that together, you don't have the whole person by any means. 
and what is most critical to understanding the whole person is where they're engaging their life and whether their systems, their relationships, their careers and so forth are in some way um, consonant with the intentions of their own souls. And when they're not, then psychopathology occurs, the expression of the suffering of the soul. So part of my work as a Jungian analyst is to try to track the behavioral patterns, the dreams, the symptoms of people back to their sources and to say, all right, the human psyche is autonomously communicating to us here. It's trying to, to reach us. That's why we have symptoms. Rather than say, how quickly do I get rid of them? Let me medicate that away. We ask rather the question, why have they come? What is this asking of me? And, and just as there are sort of pathological states in individual lives, there are pathological states in the life of cultures too. And so cultures themselves at times grow sick and, and need treatment of one kind or another. So to put it in the simplest terms, we are that meaning-seeking, meaning-creating animal, and we suffer the disconnects from it. And to add one important piece to this, historically, the linkages to meaning were found primarily for most individuals through the mythological systems of the tribe or through the mediation of sacred institutions. And as the linking capacity of those systems of tribe and, and institutional life have tended to you know, waver for more and more people, to erode for more and more people, then the problem of meaning sort of falls back upon the shoulders of the individual. You can put it this way very succinctly once in one of his letters, he said the, the modern person living in our era fell off the roof of the medieval cathedral into the abyss of the self. And, and the psyche ill tolerates that state of ambiguity. So it will quickly look out for surrogates, for alternative linkages to meaning. And by and large, at least Western culture and many parts of Asian culture as well, have evolved surrogates or, or substitutes for linkage to meaning, of which our chief examples are materialism. You know, if you're feeling disconnected and empty inside, go buy something. You feel some connection there. Hedonism, search for pleasure. Narcissism, it's all about me. I'm not related to nature, I'm not related to you, I'm not related to my community, not related to, to anything. Now, our societies have been in some way worshiping those systems now for many decades. And yet people feel more adrift, more alienated, and, and more at loss for something missing in their lives. So, Materialism, hedonism, narcissism haven't worked out very well. And if they, they had worked out, we'd, we'd know it by now. Mm -hmm. Just kind of drawing kind of parallels to what you're speaking about with my own life. I've noticed that um, when, when I'm feeling turbulence within the soul, when I'm able to listen to that, it's, it's quite an uncomfortable feeling, but it, it almost feels as though it's a signal um, and can be used as a, a positive tool um, to ignite or, or as a catalyst for change. And it can actually be a powerful thing once viewed as that. Um, mm -hmm. 
as long as I don't sit in the swamp of it for too long. Um, mm-hmm. I guess, do you have any ideas about how to, how to recognize that within yourself, that, that feeling? And there's, there seems to be a, a recognition that needs to take place before anything can happen. And also, um, some kind of, um, some kind of lift off. I'm not really sure how to explain it, but some kind of movement um, in a direction. How do we how do we hear the voice of our own soul as kind of woo woo as that might come across initially? But how do we learn to deepen our skills of listening to ourselves and then um, find a way through those those difficult um, uh, internal processes that arise? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, people don't drop in to see a therapist such as me uh, because they were in the neighborhood and want to have a chat with a stranger. They do it because something is hurting. And the hurting has gotten to a pitch that is not assuaged by the old behaviors or the old distractions or the old self-medications or whatever their treatment plan was. And there's a saying from the Middle Ages that, that suggested that suffering is the fastest horse to completion. Something has to hurt enough to get our attention. Now, let me give you an example of a common experience. I think we've all gone through it in some way. We receive from our family of origin, from our popular culture, from you know, our sources of our education, religious upbringing, cultural influences, and so forth, sort of admonitions, prohibitions, instructions. This is what you're to do and be as a person. This is what you're to aspire for. Here are your goals, and most of us leave home with the best of intentions and go out into the world serving those instructions one way or the other. And we might actually have been successful doing those things. And yet at some point you realize that there's a disconnect. The feeling function there is not supporting it. If I've I've done the right things, why does it not feel rewarding within myself? If, If I've done the right things, why do I feel boredom or loss of connection or purpose or meaning or or why is the energy not available that I used to be able so readily to bring to the situation. Now those are all signs when we look at it psychoanalytically of the autonomous withdrawal of the human psyche from cooperating with the decisions that the executive board upstairs has made. In other words, we think we know who we are. We're making proper choices. We don't normally say today I'm going to do stupid things and counterproductive things, but by day's end, we would likely will have. So there's some other cluster of energy in us that's paying attention, that has a, a perspective, and is obviously trying to communicate to us. And one of its modalities of communication is the withdrawal of approval and support. So many times people will feel depression. It doesn't mean they're not functional. They may be taking care of business in their lives, but there's, there's that inner sense of heaviness, uh, that, that, that sort of malaise that one carries. And, and then we'd have to ask the question, why has why the psyche withdrawn its approval and support from the places where you're investing it? Let's say we've worked hard to prepare for a career or we've invested a great deal in a relationship, but there's no sense of ongoing purposefulness or satisfaction coming from it. And then you'd have to say, all right, what, what would the psyche want from me? What, what's, what's the 
what's the alternative here? And those are those in-between states, what are called liminal states. Limnos meant threshold, where we're betwixt and between. It's almost like we need to be asking a few questions and we need to be digging a bit sure. deeper when we get to these feelings. Sure. We, yeah, we ask, why have my usual understandings and techniques not continue to work? That's a good question. It's a healthy question. And sometimes that in-between time, whether it's in a moment in history, such as ours, or a moment in the life of a person, can be very painful. And over an extended period, sometimes those in-between times can last years for us, where something has played out and something has not yet appeared on the horizon. Mm. One thing I've tried to say to people, you know, we, we often, so to speak, walk down the streets backwards, metaphorically. It's sort of like we're always looking at our future in terms of whatever the instructions or the lenses that we had to make our choices in the past allow us to see. And I, I would say, you know, you can't see it yet, but the future out there is just as real as anything that ever happened in your past. And right now is this transition between a received worldview, a received set of instructions, and the possibility of creating a new life, a different kind of life, and, and one in which you're more of a conscious participant than you could have been as a child when you're being bombarded with all of these examples outside of you and all of these messages. Mm. And, and it's just as real, as I said, because often people can't imagine what they haven't known or experienced. And that's why I say it's like walking down the street backwards. And nobody would do that because you never know what you'll walk into. But we do it psychologically all the time. Yeah, that's interesting. Hmm. Where to go from here? <laughs> I've, hmm. Yeah, I feel as though there seems to be a lot of these kind of automatic processes that go on um, within our beings and, and um, a lot of them seem to trace back to, you know, even when we might have been in the womb or when we were being born, certain, you know, experiences can link back to that and that can form um, parts of who we are and, 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 and parts of these kind of automatic rhythms of things. And also, like you mentioned, the influences from society, our parents and their own kind of traumatic experience kind of feel, seem to be able to seem to filter through our um, our experiences kind of put together you know part of who we are and there seems to be this other area which I find pretty intriguing in Jung's work of of the collective unconscious and that is probably links back to what you're talking about with mythology and even some of like Robert Campbell's work with on the hero's journey this kind of idea of um, you know, different different stories or different characters or archetypes that play out um, throughout our beings, and 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 you know, we we notice them sometimes in dreams through symbology, and um, it just seems like there's a lot going on within us, mm -hmm. and it can be quite quite daunting the idea of trying to kind of um, work through some of that so that we can. Um, you know, be more consciously feeling into our existence. And this idea of feeling in is, is fairly interesting and it's caught my attention recently. It's, it's really 
it's there seems that, that there needs to be a change that takes place that that's taking place and i know that change is always happening in 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 many different ways and and never really stops but seems to be some kind of a moving into um the next part um that needs to that will need to take place at some point and the facilitation or acceleration of that the idea of that excites me um and 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 helping people i guess move into this felt sense it's almost like in uh chinese um you know ancient chinese kind of wisdom mystics would say the heart is for um decision making the gut is for transformation but we've almost been leading with the mind a lot which is something mm-hmm. i think you were pointing to so um yeah it's 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 what i've noticed is getting back to that sense of feeling uh i've i tried to explore ways to allow people to pause and and get come back to that natural state of stillness that we all have so that we can kind of just i know mindfulness is kind of a loaded term these days but come back into kind of ourselves and almost tap into that innate intelligence that i feel like a lot of that draws from this collective unconscious which we're obviously not aware of could you speak a little bit about that and and this idea of kind of um the collective unconscious and and maybe shed some light on 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 what that's about and how that might link up to what uh-huh. what we're talking about well you've you've asked several questions in your recent remarks so it's hard to know which one to pick up but i'll start with the last one what you meant by the collective unconscious, unconscious is not something occult or mystical it's simply talking about we share as the human animal a common symbolic system a a you know where does meaning come from meaning is not inherent in nature meaning is not inherent in matter but we are the meaning seeking creatures as as i mentioned so it's how does our psyche structure reality and stand in relationship to it why do we create rituals why do we create societies why do we create religions etc cetera, etc cetera? value systems of all kinds these are these are psychological expressions and psychological needs at some level and so the collective unconscious simply refers to the fact that you and i talking here in the so-called 21st century uh can have a dream tonight that's identical to a dream someone had thousands of years ago we have plenty of evidence of that and and you'd say well what's the connection between us it's it's not an overt connection but it's it's again sharing a common symbol formation system that we have um you want to talk about three layers of of our being the conscious layer which is the one we're engaging at the moment is actually prized by consciousness as who we are but it's only a small wafer floating on a large sea there's a second layer that's really the personal unconscious which includes everything that's ever happened to you and that's where freud sort of stopped off there and thought what we carry was simply what has happened to us plus our instinctual systems uh in the course of our personal biographies and in that um personal unconscious are the various clusters of energy that you call the complex now a complex is a neutral word it can be it simply means a cluster of energy a, a structure like an airport complex or an ar- apartment complex but we all have complexes around certain emotionally charged experiences in life and so whenever they're triggered 
they have the power to come up and usurp that fragile consciousness, take over, and act out a script from long ago and far away. That's why we have patterns in our lives. We don't often, again, rise in the morning and say, well, today I'm going to do the same stupid things I've done in the past you know, decades. seems easy to miss that that's going on, though, while it's happening. It is. Of course it is, because it's happening unconsciously. We're not aware of it. People have often said, well, how do I begin this sort of analysis of my psychological life and my, my formative patterns and the, the engines that are pushing me? And I would say, well, start with your patterns. Start with the patterns that you think are counterproductive to your best interests or maybe are hurtful to someone else. And realize that what we do is always logical if we can work back to it's a premise. And the premise will be what got charged in our emotional history. Mm. And, and, and it's logical based on that premise, but it could have been the perspective of the child. So as children, we're constantly trying to sort of sort out, is the other person safe or unsafe? Can I approach them? Uh, do I need to keep my distance? Do I have to avoid them? Do I have to mollify them? Do, what, what, do I, what are my, ins my sort of instructions? Um, and, and we also, in some deeper layer, you know, carry the information of our culture. What did I see my parents do? What, how did I interpret their values and behaviors? And what was I exposed to in my cultural formation? And then, of course, the collective unconscious, as I mentioned, is the sort of heritage we all share. That's why when Joseph Campbell talked about the hero with a thousand faces, he said, the idea of the hero is a universal idea. That's what an archetype is. It's a universal structuring idea. And I want to put the emphasis upon the idea of the archetype as a verb, not a noun. It's not a received content. It's a, it's a formative energy. So, for example, the archetype of the hero is within all of us. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. I mean, terror and economic hardship can do that too. But the hero is the so-called so energy that is tasked with taking on the struggles of life operating in the face of our fears, overcoming our inherent lethargy and desire to avoid the struggles of life and all of those things. Those are the enemies of life, fear and lethargy ultimately. And what in us brings us to the table and takes them on on a daily basis? Well, that's what has been called the, the hero archetype. And the archetype of the hero is often seen in stories as some virtually supernatural figure or some, some special figure, but the purpose of those stories was to activate that kind of energy inside of each, each person to, in, if you will, inspire them or breathe within that kind of, of energy to, to sort of bring us to the struggle of life. You know, your life is a journey. It's a struggle. There are many obstacles. Some of them are outside of you and some of them are inside of you. And the purpose of your life will be found in the degree to which you can figure out essentially who you're supposed to be coming from more inside instructions than external and live it to the best of your ability. None of us will get it all right. <laughs> None of us will be perfect. Um, we will all falter and fail and, and, and injure ourselves along the way and be injured by others. That's, you know, welcome to the circus of life. But, but you're, you're, calling here is to bring who you are into this world. Another way of putting this, in the first half of life, speaking very broadly, um, 
your task is, what is the world asking of me? Can I mobilize enough energy to leave mother and father, go out into the world, create relationship, create career, become a productive citizen, you know, become a person in the world. But in the second half of life, the question shifts a little bit and perhaps could be better seen as, um, what does the soul ask of me? Which is a different question. That's why if I have followed all of my instructions and faithfully, and, and, and yet, let's say at midlife experienced a depression, which is what sent me in my 30s to my first hour of analysis many years ago, not because I wanted to, because suddenly the roadmap was no longer working. Um, then you begin to ask a different kind of question. And that is, what is the soul wanting of me in this world? And that's a different question. And if you're privileged to live long enough, these kinds of issues, crises, these kinds of um, sort of transitional periods or passages um, will come up repeated, uh, repeatedly in your life. Sometimes they're large passages. Uh, sometimes they're, they're actually small ones or even on a daily basis. But something in us is always dying and something is always wanting to emerge. And the more consciously I can attend to that, the, the sort of more I'm cooperating with life rather than running from it or, or, or resisting it. When I first returned from my training in Zurich back in the uh, 70s and started working with people, I, I realized that everybody came in with a different presenting story and a, a different history. But what everybody had in common was that their understanding of self and world, their roadmap, so to speak, had played out. And, um, you know, if you use an old map for the new terrain, you're not going to get very far. And it just occurred to me, that's what a passage is. Something has played out. The new possibility, the, the new understanding, the new strategy is not yet here. It's not available. It's still in the unconscious, just over the horizon. And we have to sort of tolerate the difficult in between. And, and holding those pieces together is often one of the functions of therapy. This often occurs at midlife, although it can happen at any point when people's children leave, when they're downsized, when they lose a partner, when, when they're facing aging or illness or mortality. There are a thousand precipitants for these sort of challenges to our maps. But the question then is, all right, <laughs> Can I be willing to let go of the old instruction and risk stepping into a, a different journey? Mm -hmm. And when one is able to bring that kind of openness to the issue, life gets very interesting. And people's story begins to deepen. And um, they begin to find that they're on the road to connecting to, um, you know, may, maybe their real journey rather than the one that they receive from their culture. Yeah, what an interesting, what an interesting uh, life you've led to be able to um, go through this process yourself and to be able to connect with so many stories and kind of see this process unfold within different individuals. I think that's, that, that sounds quite amazing to me. And it sounds like, it sounds, there's, there's a beauty to that. That I, that I really respect, but I, I realize as well that it must be quite difficult because it seems as though um, with Jungian work, there's a lot of kind of digging and a lot of kind of uncovering kind of 
those those deeper kind of layers that have been i guess calcified over the over time um would you be able to talk to me a little bit about this idea of shadow work and this idea uh-huh. of um finding these uh, you'd probably be able to put it better than I could, but these kind of deeper layers um, that we may not be aware of and, and bringing them to light so that we can integrate them into our being? Sure. Well, the, the shadow was Jung's very rich concept of um, all that within myself or within my organizations or uh, groups. So there's a, there's a personal shadow and there's a collective shadow. And the collective shadow could be in your community. It could be in your religious institution. It could be in your nation, for example. All nations have shadows. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it represents those parts of me that when I bring into consciousness and face and acknowledge, I'm not happy with, either because they are contradictory to my professed values, they represent what I don't want to be, or sometimes because they challenge me so much that I just assume not even address them. So in this can come, I mean, who wants to look at one's um, uh, capacity for violence, for example? Um, who wants to acknowledge greed? Who wants to acknowledge vanity? Who wants to acknowledge lustfulness? Who wants to acknowledge pettiness, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera? It's so much easier to see it in our neighbors than mm. see it in ourselves. And yet that's shadow. Why should I ever think that I'm exempt from the whole human project? Why should I think that I'm exempt from, from you know, carrying all the possibilities of humanity that's in our DNA for, from the beginning? Now, the other side of that is, and, and by the way, maybe the best thing ever said about the shadow came from the Latin playwright Terence 21 centuries ago who said, nothing human is alien to me. Now, if I really understand that and grasp that, I'm going to be less in a position of judgment over somebody else and recognize where is that in me? And the moment I begin to ask a question like that, you see, it begins to relativize the spirit of arrogance that the ego often has. I know who I am. I'm a good person. I'm doing the right things even if I don't really know ultimately what consequences are. I'll give a quick example. Most parents have the best of intentions for their children. Why is it that I as a therapist have to spend so much time helping people unpack their negative encounters with their parents and and, and try to repair some of that damage? Because Mm. parents are just somebody else's children bumbling along in life and making choices. You know, Jung said once the greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of the parent. So wherever that parent's been stuck or blocked, the child's gonna be stuck and blocked at that point. And will either be crippled by that or spending a lot of time trying to overcome that or maybe self-medicating that or they're, they're not gonna be absent from its profound influence. Now, the, the shadow also though, as I mentioned, represents those parts of ourselves that um, are threatening to the ego. For example, I think when, when Jung said, we all walk in shoes too small for us, I think what he was really saying was, yeah, we're creatures of adaptation. That's important and essential. That's how we get to this place in the face of a sometimes hostile world. But our biggest shadow is the tiny lives we live, the lives that are simply adaptive, simply fitting in, 
one of our biggest shadow issues, and I say this utterly without judgment of anybody, is how much our fear management systems that we all have to develop actually govern our lives. It's, it's when you really get into it and you start working through it. That's why people have to ask of every behavior, of every value commitment, of, of every large decision, well, but what was that in service to inside of me, really? I have to add that word, really, because you don't want to trust your first response. Your first response is perhaps the complex justifying itself. The first response is an old sort of system of managing stress and anxiety for, for good reasons. But if you really look at it, we say, well, it's, it's coming from a place in me that's really frightened and therefore producing compliance in this area. Or, or where in our relationships are we avoidant of conflict? Not many people enjoy conflict. Only some of the most troubled do. But then if I'm not willing to engage in some conflict, then I'm not going to be a person of any values. Because sometimes you have to care about something enough to stand for it, even to fight for it. And, and so you see the shadow is a very rich concept. You and I are talking right now, to use Jung's terms, persona to persona, um, meaning we're presenting you with the face and a mask. A persona mm -hmm. means a mask from the mm -hmm. Greek. Not inappropriately, and you, you wear a certain persona at a sports event, a certain persona at a funeral, let's say. You're only in trouble if you think your persona is who you are. That's where people can get caught in their roles or caught in their tasks of life. And if I'm the mother, what happens when my children go away? If I am the employer, what happens when I have to retire or something like that? And you have crises of persona. It's interesting when we look at, I've been doing this recently and just kind of looking at the different personas that make up who we are. I, I, I like to think mm -hmm. of it as like a village of people and then kind of just kind of looking at where they come up in, in which situations and how they interact with one another and, you know, how you can call upon some of them, like we mentioned earlier, when we might need a bit of, you know, extra energy in a certain area and um, just kind of looking at that within ourselves but it seems like we're more than all of that in some regard. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, again, um, these are not meant to be labels. Mm. Uh, they're meant to describe processes in us. Mm. So, um, you know, persona, shadow, these are arrangements of energy. Complexes are arrangements of energy, if you will, structures of energy. And so if we could really see into us with this third eye or something, we'd see all these energies coursing through us. And archetypal patterns are there as well, creating a, a world, you know. The, the structures of the world come not from nature, but from the human psyche. Mm. And, and again, we create them out of our desire for order, for purpose, for clarity, and for meaning. And some of them serve us, and some of them hurt us in various ways. But it's it's out of the human psyche. <laughs> nature is simply you know observing the powers of nature, of death and rebirth on a daily basis. Nature is operating in us, 
you know, the cells are being born, the cells are dying. After you're 25 or 26 in that area, they, they're reproduced at a slower rate, by the way. So that means most of us watching this program are on the downhill slope and have been for some time. But, you know, nature is including to our ego's dismay, our uh, sort of progress towards our mortality. And therefore you see, there's a big crisis right there. Probably the biggest human crisis is that this particular animal is also informed and becomes conscious of the fact that it's transient, it's mortal. You know, an animal can fear a predator, but it doesn't fear a possible death out there over the horizon, but human beings do. And then again, the pragmatic question comes up, all right, what does that make you do? What does that keep you from doing? And, and does it cause you to enrich your life and risk it and dive into it? Or does it produce a fugitive existence? He wrote a beautiful essay once called The Soul and Death. And he said, his observation, and I would concur with this in my own experience, is that those who, who most feared death were the persons who most feared their life and were living too cautiously and too timidly. And those who would somehow risk being who they were had far less concern about mortality. They were rather focused on, you know, fulfilling this journey as, as much as they could along the way. So, you know, the, the, the great puzzle <laughs> to the human animal is mortality, of course, because it frames our life and how it defines it and, and how it makes certain things um, uh, important to us. Mm. The paradox is it's because we're meaning, excuse me, because we're mortal, meaning matters. If I lived forever, then I could just do this for a century, then do something else for a century, and then do something else for nothing would matter. Be like the idle rich who have nothing to do that's important and meaningful in their life. It's like you're just killing time. Mm. That's that's a portrait of of a kind of um, hell, I think. Um, because we're mortal, your choices matter. What are you choosing? Why? And are you in some way investing in the choices that matter to you? And guess what? It's your job to figure out what it is that really matters. And and that's what brings meaning to our life, paradoxically. Yeah, it's such a beautiful thought, <laughs> just to sit with that for a moment. I think that's quite profound. I, I'm kind of cognizant of time, and, and there's so many areas I'd love to explore with you while I have this wonderful opportunity to have you here with me. Um, I guess I wanted to touch on the idea of, um, you know, we've kind of covered, I guess, the significance of really diving into a deeper expression of our being. And we've kind of touched on the idea of healing through that process. I'd like to look at some of the more, um, I guess, fascinating areas for myself in regards to Jung's work and possibly yours. I, I find um, synchronicity to be one of those. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be some kind of a link between um, a really strange and mysterious link between what's conscious and um, like in the intra psyche of 
space of, of visions and dreams and there seems to be some kind of an interplay that goes on there that I find quite mysterious and 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 um, engaging to think about do you, could you speak to me a little bit about uh, your experience with synchronicity I've noticed in my life I've had I've had um, many in the last um, two months I guess occasions where um, you know it seems to be ramping up the amount of synchronicities that are going on and it's it's almost become um, normal in some sense mm-hmm. uh, yeah would we be able to just touch on that for a moment sure well you know synchronicity has been defined by Jung as a causal causality meaning there's no apparent outer causation of the convergence of things um, the, this is not to rule out um, coincidence. Coincidence happens as part of mathematic possibilities. Yeah. But we always have to ask the question, is, is there in this coming together of events or circumstances um, some possible meaning that something that comes to me as a question that's worthy of my being addressed? We've all had the experience, for example, of thinking about someone we haven't thought about or heard from for a long time, many years maybe, and suddenly you get an email from them. Or, or, or a dream occurs, because in our dream world, the limits of time and space are dissolved. You could have your, your earliest school teacher and a playmate from, from childhood and a television character and someone in your present life all brought together in the same little phantasmagoria, and it has a, a meaning, a transcends time and space. And we were all raised in a kind of Newtonian mechanics in a, in a world of cause and effect. But quantum physics is telling us that the relativity of these dimensions is, is, is far more mysterious than we've ever thought. And our human ego has trouble understanding, the, as I said, the dissolution of those sort of categories of expectation. But they occur in our life all the time. So um, synchronicity was discovered, if you will, or, or certainly most written about actually thousands of years ago in Asia. And various um, uh, literary works like the I Ching were efforts to sort of address, um, you know, see in the Western world, we have tended to prize the outer material form of existence. That's why our physics and our chemistry had historically prevailed. But in the Eastern world, and I know this is an overgeneralization, there's far greater attention to the internal world. If, if two cars collide at an intersection, why have they collided? You know, insurance corporations might want to ask, well, who's to blame? The law might ask, who's to blame here? We would rather ask the question, what has brought these two people together at this point in their life? What is the meaning for this, of this thing? And, and what kind of, of maybe enlarged consciousness can come out of that? In other words, it's more than the material forms of cause and effect. There has to be an interiority to time and space. It's not just what happened, but why did it happen? And what maybe is going on inside of us that introduces us to a different layer of, of psychological reality. Because whoever has discovered the power of the human psyche it realizes, you know, I, I only know a fragment of all of this now, right? Is that's why I say you get a more and more interesting life. It's less 
certain, but certainty is usually associated with stupidity, right? So the more interesting your life uh, and the more you're open to that, uh, the more the, the more it's going to be a developmental journey. You, 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 you pick up things along the way. I, I was amused, someone recently said on, on a review of my, one of my books on Amazon that they were complaining about my vocabulary. And I thought, why would you complain? Every word's an aperture into a larger world. Do you want to stay in this world? Every word that you learn is in some way a perspective. It's a venue that widens your, your world. Uh, you know, otherwise, don't bother to read a book, you know? But see, in, in those moments, you see, there is always an interior issue at stake. To deal with synchronicity is at least to ask the question, as I mentioned, there is coincidence, but there are times in which there are meaningful events. I could give you examples from the lives of people where, you know, things just show up in their life, which suddenly speak to what their journey's about. I think probably the, the most um, useful and, and ubiquitous of our synchronistic experience, frankly, is our dream life, because as Jung said, once the you know, your, your troubled mind will tell you what your problems are of this moment in life. But he said, the dreams tell us the Tao of the moment, meaning by that, they tell us what's really going on here. If you pay attention sooner or later. What do you, what do you mean by the Tao of the moment? Could you go a bit deeper into that point? That sounds interesting. By the Tao, I mean the TAO, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's in a sense, saying this is what is really going on in your psyche even while your ego is preoccupied with this outside mm. um, and and let's say a person is cruising along in a apparently self-governed life and yet has all of these disturbing disturbing dreams or violent dreams or dreams that indicate other things now who are you going to believe there what the person says or what their dream life is telling them and it's so easy to dismiss the dream world as, oh, I know why I dreamt that I was watching something on television or, or that just came from what I ate last night. <laughs> that's, the, that's the mechanistic mind trying to distance itself from a mystery. And the more we do that, the more we cut ourselves off from what renews and is the source in our life. There definitely so seems to be elements taken from these recent influences that I've noticed in my dreams. Like if I watch a particular movie or have a particular conversation or have some kind of an experience, um, elements of that show up in my dreams mm -hmm. a couple of nights later, but maybe there's a message and maybe they're used on some weird level as kind of tools to express something to myself. Sure. Sure. I, they're, they're seldom direct causal things. It's rather, what I call the central casting office of the psyche says, all right, well, send out for, you know, an old school teacher of yours or an old chum from your, your past. We're going to pull them into this drama that we're filming here tonight because they're going to be embodying this other issue. Um, or even if, uh, you know, the, the psyche is also scavenger. It'll come from the newspapers, what you saw on the television, what you heard from somebody. Um, it's seldom about those things. If it were about those things, your conscious mind's already processing that. But it's borrowing those things, utilizing those things to sort of illustrate something else going on in your life. Where, where it gets tough in working with dreams, for example, is if you're in a relationship or if, you have a, if you're a parent 
you dream of your child, is this a processing something with your outer children? Or is this somehow borrowing your child to, to illustrate something that's going on inside of you? And maybe it's both. So that's why when we approach dreams, we start at the objective level, which is to say, all right, is this processing some outer experience? And the answer is sometimes yes. Much of the time we have to go to the subjective level and ask, all right, what is that really saying about what's happening to me intrapsychically? Because the ego can manage the outer relationships pretty well, or most of the time. What it's meaning inside is another matter. How this touches us and blocks maybe our development or supports us or challenges it. That's the subjective level of the dream. Yeah, and it seems to me that, I don't know, this is just really reaching out now, but um, this, uh, there's definitely seems to be some sense of higher intelligence or deeper wisdom or whatever you want to call it going mm -hmm. on there. If, yeah. if, if there's a scavenger element of all of this and, and a pulling mm -hmm. together of kind of resources to, to show some kind of a message or to invoke some kind of a mm -hmm. feeling um, for some kind of a higher purpose, right? But um, it's, it seems quite tricky to decipher because, I mean, no one else... I mean, it's pretty hard. It seems pretty hard for someone else to tell me about my own dreams because it's like you said, it seems to be quite a subjective experience unless right. someone was to know me, you know, really, really, really well. But even then, um, and maybe with the background in, in, in work with this kind of thing. Um, but, and, and there seems to be some kind of a mixture between um, conscious elements, you know, these archetypes and mythology and symbolism. Uh -huh. And uh -huh. then not only what's showing up in the dream, because it, just because something shows up in your dream, I don't think it necessarily means go down that path and follow it. Maybe it just is meant to invoke something in you so that, you know, I don't know, bring something from the unconscious to the conscious. There's this kind of middle section that's really uh -huh. interesting. I don't really know where I'm getting with all of this, but it just seems, I guess, difficult to decipher. And Well, they um, are. Yeah. <laughs> If they were easy, then everybody would do it all the time, but they're difficult. And um, most of the dream dictionaries out there are pretty worthless. There's somebody's associations. But let's just say you dream of your grandmother this evening, and I dream of my grandmother. Well, there's mm. grandmotherliness. So there's that the collective level. Mm. But then your grandmother was not my grandmother, and vice versa. That's the personal level. So mm. we'd have to sort of look at it in terms of what are your conscious reflections, What's the history of the charges around your grandmother experience, plus or minus, and a mixture of all of those? And at a deeper level, what is grandmotherliness, if I can create such a word? And all of those can be informing the dream. And again, the purpose of a dream, uh, in, sleep research tells us we dream about six times per night. And most people are going to quickly say, I don't dream, or I don't dream that much. Well, sleep research tells us we do. I'm 80 now, and if you live to 80, as I've been lucky to do, or unlucky, I don't know, uh, you will have spent six years of your life dreaming. Think of that. That's extraordinary. Nature does not waste energy. It's serving a purpose. Now, whether we remember our dreams or not, um, it's apparent, I think, this is my theory, but it's not original with me either, um, that so much, so many stimuli hit us on a daily basis. Our system can't, 
process it all. That's why nature sends us to bed to try to sleep, to repair, to restore, and to process that data. Mm. And if, if we're prevented from dreaming, you know, sleep researchers, when they have a person all wired up, they can tell when they start to dream. They can, they can sleep as long as they want, but their dreams are interrupted. They're not allowed to dream. After a, a few days of this, tend to have hallucinations, which suggests, again, this material has to be metabolized when it's not been able to be in the course of our daily life. So there's that function that nature is serving, apart from our paying attention. Mm. But then it's also true when you reference some other intelligence within us that's transcendent to the ego, which is my conscious awareness of things. And that's what Jung meant by the self with a capital S. The self is not the same as the ego. The self is the totality of psychic functioning. So as we're talking, the self is at work arranging the birth and death of all those cells I referenced earlier. It's growing your toenails. It's processing your digestion. It's, it's arranging all these neurological responses, but it's also creating affect, creating thought, and creating conscious responses. Now, most of that's happening outside the frame of the ego um, function. You know, the ego is prized with a very important task, and that's the interface with the external world. You know, it's, it's the ego's job to, you know, help us drive our car and not run into people or to a tree. That's important. Um, but it often arrogates to itself a power it doesn't really have. The power that says, I'm the boss, I know who I am, I'm in charge here. It's kind of like the flea on the back of a, of a lion and the flea looks ahead and sees everybody running thinking how powerful I am when in fact it's, it's in service to a much larger reality. The self is a verb, again, not a noun. The self is selving. And it's all those energy systems that are work maintaining who you are. And it's clear to me that the self has two agendas. And, and one is uh, growth and development. And the second is self-healing. Wherever it can, it's trying to repair something. You know, if you break your bone, it's, it's the self that's healing. You know, the self manifests in what we call nature. The self is healing the bone, not the physician. The physician will create the conditions, support the conditions for the healing, as opposed to opposing those conditions. But it's nature that heals, not mm -hmm. the ego world. And the same is true psychologically, too. It's a, it's a work of the spirit more of, than of, of, of intellect or, or of uh, conscious control. Yeah, I definitely feel what you're saying and, and it seems that's why I'm really I'm really am interested in this idea of kind of um you know giving giving that space for the for that that flea to kind of calm down for a moment and have um you know it seems to be these 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 states of stillness that we can reach or even like um through like holotropic breathing or things like um you know even practices that 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 ancient religion provides us with like chanting mm -hmm. and um mm -hmm. you know fasting and prayer and and looking at these different things like you know yogic practices and and, and things that arise in sufism and these different realms to allow um that to kind of just kind of pause for a moment or that that default 
mode network that seems to be kind of a lot of the time um, steering steering us in different directions and you know coming back to that that state where it seems the healing takes place and, and insights occur um, mm-hmm. pretty spontaneously I, before we wrap things up I really wanted to touch on um, two things if, if that's okay and one was this idea of um, stepping into our own lives. I want to come back to this for a moment because once we, once we're able to either through one of these states or through the many practices or, or just, you know, if it just hits us in the face in life and we're able to really recognize this opportunity to change and to grow and, and maybe we, we feel into what our own unique expression might look like in that, in that particular moment there still needs to be this this stepping into it seems this this mm-hmm. this um doing the thing that ought to be done whether it's whether we want to or not you know it's 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 almost like that this this kind of a, a friction point that needs to be overcome uh, on mm-hmm. a on a continuous basis that seems cyclical and and it's we need to keep showing up to it do you have mm-hmm. any kind of um tools or, or anything to share that might help someone once they've recognized this space and, and, and where to go from there, but they're struggling with the action part of it. Um, they've, they've reflected, they've, they've, they've come a bit, they've found a little bit of clarity, but now they just need it because they're not used to moving. How do, how do we actually take the first few steps? Well, first of all, people have to stop and ask, is this really my life? I mean, many times people act as if it's a long-running play and we'll figure out what the um, life was about at the end of the play in the last scene. Well, let's, let me tell you, the last scene, you're dead. I mean, it, that's where it ends. So the question is, um, you know, are you going to do something with your life before the last scene? Um, I, I have a motto that I mentioned in a previous book, which sounds kind of silly, but it's also very serious. And I live in a six-story condo building. When I go down to my, the garage to go to the office, I always say to myself six words, shut up, suit up, show up. Shut mm. up means, you know, you, you, you might be tired in the morning, you know, something might be aching, whatever. Shut up is my way of saying to me, look, there are real problems in the world. There are people suffering intractable pain. There are people who have no food. There are people whose children are being murdered don't know where they're going to sleep tonight they have real problems so you, you shut up all right mm. this is me talking to me by the mm. way i'm not mm. being rude to somebody else in the elevator Secondly, <laughs> um, suit up means prepare do your homework don't expect something just to come to you why would you think life was going to be easier for you than for the, everybody who in the past who had to struggle or something prepare do your homework and thirdly show up just do the best you can throw yourself into it because if you don't, you're living a fugitive life. That's what it amounts to. And you know, Blaise Pascal said in the 17th century, before all the blandishments and distractions of modern life, he said, humankind's chief obstacle and chief problem is their inability to be with themselves in their private chamber. We're terrified of silence. We're terrified of being with ourselves. This is not an introvert talking. I'm talking about a human being who cannot tolerate being with themselves very well. 
Now, if I can't in some way deal with that issue, I'm not going to be very good into my outer relationships either. Because one of the things I've learned is that no relationship with the other, whether it's the world out there or a, a partner, is going to be any more evolved than I am in relationship to myself. Mm. That's where I'm avoidant and, and stuck and so forth. It's going to show up. It shows up. Yeah. It always shows up. And so you have to decide, is this your life? And is it going to matter to you? And what is it you really care about? And why are you waiting for someone to explain all that to you? Don't you realize this is it? It's, it's short. And, and we have to live as if we're going to live forever, but we have to live as if today is our last day. And somehow there's a, there's a paradox there. And you remember that, you know, and, and, and it, it, it sort of gets your attention. So you're welcome to borrow my motto, <laughs> shut up, suit up, show up if you wish. Thank you so much for sharing that wisdom and, and for all of this. Um, so uh, the last question I have before maybe you could share some information on, I mean, you've written 16 books. What's going on with that? 16 books. That's crazy. And you've, You're you've, right. you've, you've mm -hmm. had these, it, it seems like a lot of things have come through you um, and you've, you've flowed with that you know you mentioned your trip to uh -huh. Zurich and your change uh -huh. in in your path I'm aware of as well and then now these books and your continuous work of showing up every morning um, and yeah I, I'd like to kind of I'd like for you to share some information on how people can get in touch fine um, before I do that I want to ask the final question and it's based on it's a real personal one to me it's based on the way that I'm attempting to show up in my own life at the moment I've, I've been called to write a book myself for the first time and it's something that is a really mm -hmm. kind of daunting thing, but it's kind of, I don't feel like I have a choice in the matter um, as you've probably been familiar with the feeling somewhere mm -hmm. along your journey. Um, and the book's on vibration and okay. um, the vibration that exists, you know, in, in different senses, but this kind of un unquantifiable feeling between people um, you know, from a sound perspective, from a scientific perspective, and, and just kind of looking at that and how that translates to, you know, tuning into that, syncing up with it, and then radiating that outwards from, um, again, working on ourselves, like you just mentioned, and then allowing that to, you know, filter through our different relationships, whether that's with our friends, family, loved ones, or the world around us. I was wondering if you could maybe, I'm, I'm gathering um, thoughts and perspectives on vibration from different people. And I'd love to hear if you had any, any ideas or any thoughts on that, whatever comes to mind. And then, um, yeah, if you could maybe share some information on how people could get in touch. If you're, if you've got spaces open for therapy, if you have any interesting books that people could kind of connect with and, and that kind of thing, and then we could close things off. Well, again, Michael, you've asked about 15 questions. So, <laughs> Um, you, you're right. You, you use the key word there, and that is something is wanting to flow through you. Um, I, I wrote a book when I, before I was 30 because I was entering academia, and that's what academics do. And it was in a publisher parish world, and so um, I did what I was supposed to do. And then there's something inside rebelled. I hit a midlife depression. I went for retraining, all kinds of other things that 
you know, raising children and so forth, all of which were important. Um, but I didn't write anything for over 25 years. So the next 15 books came out of the last 25 years or so. And I've started the 17th, by the way. So <laughs> um, something was, was building inside. And I've, I've used the word daimon. The, the D-I-I-M-O-N, daimon, was the Greek understanding. I guess the Latin version would have been the muse. That there's some kind of tutelary or, or instructive agent between us and the gods or the mysteries. And from time to time, it visits us and asks us, to embody it in the world. It sounds kind of crazy, but that's what vocation is, to be called to do something. So um, the last book I wrote was actually finished two years ago. It so fit the experience we're having politically and in terms of the uh, virus going around the world. It, it was called um, uh, Living Between Worlds, you know, both mm. cultural change and personal change and subtitle, Finding Personal Resilience in Changing Times. Mm. Because people have been forced back on their own resources in a way that hasn't happened for most people in their entire lives. And they're not happy to find the person that they meet in that encounter necessarily. So there is the project that lies ahead for them. And, and the new one, I don't know what the title is going to be, but it, it's really, once again, in service to the daimon. Now, I suppose one could think about that in terms, again, of energy systems. For me, the concept of vibration has to do with um, primal rhythms. We have vibrations going on continuously in our bodies. Some of those are measurable. Some of those are instruments that uh, we have instruments to measure some of them, of course. We have vibrations going on in nature all the time, which are you know, rhythmic impulses of nature. And I think a lot of the great traditions, particularly the mystical traditions, had as their goal the alignment of one's personal vibrations with the vibrations of the cosmos. Now, that's a very vague concept, but psychologically, again, it's sort of like aligning yourself with the Tao, the Tao of the moment. That is to say, all right, I can, I can be in this world and performing my daily tasks in the society around me. And nothing exempts me from that accountability, but I also have accountability to what is wanting expression inside of me. And so then one has to, if you will, pay attention to the vibes that come for us. If what you're doing is right for you, the vibes, so to speak, will support you. And if what you're doing is wrong for you, they, they will oppose you or simply be missing. You can't force that. What I've learned more than anything else is the importance of surrender of the ego consciousness. I mean, here I am at the end of a long workday talking to you. Why do I do that? It's because I still have a vocation for teaching and sharing. That's what a teacher does. That's what I've always been, and a therapist and a writer. That's what that's what what I. It's my vocation. I could have been a tree surgeon or, or a country and Western singer or who knows what, but this is what the gods intended. So those are where the vibrations are and the things that I find most meaningful. And I can leave that for a while and often desire to leave it, frankly, but in some way, something else continues to call and I'll awaken at three o'clock and there it is. 
Another way of putting this is I find a, there's a bunch of little people down inside, speaking metaphorically. And if I have to deal with something, when I have to, to figure out a, a new approach to something or need some direction in my life, I just sort of put it in there. And the little folk work on it. They don't necessarily get back to me with a memo on my desk by four in the afternoon, but they always get back to me within typically hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, in a dream, an insight, you suddenly wake to something. I went to sleep the other night thinking about a particular essay I'd been working on. And I woke up in the middle of the night and I knew the conclusion was wrong. And the conclusion was right there. It was, it was writing in my head. And my wife said something like, well, don't you ever stop in there? I said, well, actually, no. Sometimes I wish they would, but the little people apparently work 24 hours a day. So part of my experience during the years is just to give up and listen to them from time to time. And when, when I do, um, life gets more and more interesting. And um, I think that's going on for all of us in quite different ways. I'm simply talking about my little people. Everybody has their little people and their vibes, and uh, you don't create those things. You, you, you're, you're lucky if you can tap into them, and um, you're, you're wise if you pay attention to them. I don't even know how to begin to show my gratitude. Um, thank you, thank you so much. I, I, I want to I reach out and give you a hug over there in Washington. If I was there, I definitely would be doing that. Um, Thank you so much. This has been a blessing and an honor and um, I'm, I'm going to let you go because I know that I've been kind of pushing my luck with time. But um, thank you again. Thank you so much, Dr. James. You're, you're welcome, Michael, and I wish you well. And all of those who um, are watching your, your broadcast here and, um, you know, we all have our assignments. So let's, let's try not to forget them. But thank you for this conversation. Thank you so much for tuning into this conversation with Dr. James Willis. I do encourage you to connect with his work. His 16 books are available on his website and a link to that website is available in the description section or the show notes or wherever you're watching or listening to this. If you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, it is also available on YouTube so you can watch uh, the episodes where I, I'm able to kind of add different creative elements in and um, yeah, just another option for you, I guess. And I just want to say again, I want to share my gratitude with you and I do, I'm kind of calling you out to move into, you know, moving to a, a new way of stepping into your life, a more meaningful way, whatever that might look like for you or, or at least considering one, considering where you're at and what's meaningful to you in your life and, and um, just pausing for a moment to do that, I feel as um, especially with everything that's happening at the moment, it's, it's really um, a good opportunity for that. And um, I, I feel like it's a worthwhile thing to promote and to do myself. So um, yeah, I thought I'd just leave you with that. And um, I'll catch you in the next episode next week. Thank you for being here with me.